Hello, Dr. Dyke Drummond here at the home of TheHappyMD.com in beautiful Seattle, Washington. Welcome to the latest episode of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. Tools so you can recognize and prevent your own burnout. Stories of burnout put to its highest and best use and wellness leadership strategies. Everything you need to be a physician on purpose. Well, hello again. This is Dyke Drummond at the home of thehappymd.com in beautiful Seattle, Washington, with the latest edition of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. And in this episode, what we're going to do is handle what is typically a taboo subject. We're going to talk about physician suicide. And we're going to talk about perhaps one of the best possible outcomes of the tragedy of a physician suicide. And that would be in the wake of the loss of life that someone who loved that doctor would turn it into a way to make a difference. For those of us who are still here, I would think these two brothers, I would think that the one who is gone would be very proud of and pleased with the work that's being done by the one who remains. So my guest today is Amadip Sidhu, who is from England, right? NHS, we're talking about something that happened in the NHS. And what we're gonna talk about is his charity, Doctors in Distress, org uk and I want to make sure that you get this right. It's doctors dash in dash distress org uk, and uh, what he's done is founded a charity that is in memory of his brother, his older brother uh, Jagdeep Sidhu, who was a cardiologist, and um, he took his life back in 2018. That's correct. Yeah. Okay, cool. So what I'd like to do is welcome Amandip to the show. And if you would, please tell people the story about your brother, a little bit about your brother and what ended up happening and how you made the decision to actually start a charity in the wake of this tragic event. Love to. First of all, thanks for inviting me on your show. I'm really glad to be here and uh, I've uh, admired you for quite a while. So oh. um, I'm, I'm a little bit humbled to be here. So oh, really? Uh, okay. <laughs> hopefully the nerves don't get the better of me. <laughs> So I took an interest in physician health uh, very soon after the passing of my older brother. Um, as you said, he uh, he very sadly took his own life in November 2018. And 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 the story is actually fairly typical. I realised very quickly after what happened. But sort of rolling back a few steps, my brother was a typical doctor. You know, very very academically orientated. Never got anything other than a grade A at everything he did. Those familiar with the UK system, he took on extra what we call A-levels, but, you know, this is sort of your your pre-college entry subjects and exams. So, you know, he really sailed through his medical career and he chose medicine actually from a very young age. I think he was only about 12 or 13 because he really um, had a gift for just studying hard, being able to memorize and understand complex situations and, and you know, very, very good at problem solving. So he, he decided that he wanted to really go into medicine to really make best use of that, but also from a uh, personality point of view, he was a very caring individual. He'd always the one to go out and help people and really put himself forward to, to be that sort of very much of a people person, really in teenage years. So he sailed through medical school. He went to uh, University of London and won all the usual prizes and accolades and rounds of applause, etc., for being most intelligent. And did his sort of equivalent, as you guys call it, his, his residency and got to sort of the, the highest level of medicine sort of mid-30s and what we call a consultant, but I think your equivalent's kind of 
a, a slightly different terminology, but I guess equivalent to sort of a chief of staff or, or lead physician, as it were, for, for cardiology. And he <laughs> decided never actually to go into surgery. And he won't mind me saying this, but he was a little bit clumsy with his hands. So, you know, my dad said to him, look, just stay away from that. Just do some <laughs> diagnosis and, and be a physician. And stay it's, out uh, of the kitchen too, right? <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Yeah. He wasn't, uh, he, he could never carry a tray of drinks, for example. He'll always stumble oh around. Oh my. But, uh, <laughs> it always, it always fumble it or drop something anyway. But he, he just decided that he wanted sort of a very, I'll call it a nine to five life of just being a physician, seeing patients and, and, and having a good work-life balance, or so he thought. So he worked very, very hard to get where he was, but things started to really, I guess, unravel about two years before he passed away. And, and for the first time in his life, actually, with him being the older brother, there was a five and a half year age gap between us. For the first time in his life, he reached out to me and said, I needed some help and advice on something. So I thought, okay. Man. And um, he just said he wasn't sleeping very well. He just said, Work's really pressurized and there's just so much, so much of an intense workload. And with myself being a pharmacist, I, I was able to sort of guide him to just some simple remedies that you can, uh, you can buy over the counter over here in the UK. That sort of moment in time, things started to get a bit better for him. He was sleeping a little bit better. And, and I think because of his workload, he was also doing, still doing on calls at sort of the age of 45, 46 years old. So he actually dropped that from his schedule and, and tried to give himself a bit of a bit of a better work life. And so for that time, things seemed to get a bit better. And then and then it started to sort of unravel. And, and again, a lot of what I say is from hindsight. But looking back, he started to, I guess, sort of erode as a person and, and not in an overly negative way or deliberately. But he changed. He became very, very withdrawn uh, over the following months and years and didn't really sort of seem to engage or, or be the same person that he was before. We had a close relationship, but we never phoned each other or texted each day. You know, once every couple of weeks, you know, as men and brothers do, you just occasionally check him. And then about sort of three or four months before, I, I remember seeing him because he lived about 60, 70 miles away from where I am. And my mum's very, very close by. And he just looked very, very drained as a person. His whole demeanor was just one of, I guess, looked like exhaustion at the time. And I, I just thought, probably naively, I thought just getting old and, you know, reaching middle age and just, you know, and I could identify with that as I'm sure as many people listening to this as, as, you know, as I say this, but uh, I kind of dismissed it out of hand. I didn't really appreciate what was probably happening at the time. And then what happened was um, sort of late October, early November, he really looked just very, very different as a person. There was no, I don't know how to describe it, but there wasn't sort of like this energy aura around him that there was just, I just looked at him I remember very clearly and just seeing sort of like a just an empty shell of a person there was just no there was no sort of life spirit there again I just I didn't really know make what to make of it or take it too seriously but things came to a head about a week before he passed away and and for the second time in his life he reached out to me and said right I, I really need some help I will never forget this but he phoned me during the week in the daytime when I was at work something he'd never ever do and so I stepped out of my office where I was working and I took the phone call and he said, said, right, I'm done with medicine. I, I just can't do this anymore. He cited there was a case that he was trying to work on. And he, he said, I couldn't focus. I just couldn't listen on what was being told to me. And, and it scared me. That it really scared me that I wasn't sort of, I didn't have the edge that I always have. And just felt very, I remember he said he felt very, very numb being at work and, and couldn't engage with the surroundings that he was in. And said, I, I need some advice about different careers. And, and then he came out with all this 
this stuff about all, all his angst and just all work related, by the way. So you know, he said, well, I'm really fed up with the way things medicine is here in the UK and the workload is just too high and there just aren't enough resources to treat the number of patients that we have. And, you know, I'm carrying the load of an entire hospital because um, it turned out that a few months before that, one of his colleagues in the same department went off sick long term through no fault of his own. But my brother decided, instead of getting sort of a temporary locum cover in, he said, I'll pick up all of his work. So he was doing the work of two consultants and probably picking up a few on calls by not wanting to. So he was really severely overworked and, and just probably got to the point where he just felt he couldn't cope. Yet anyone, as, as we sort of hear this at the stage now, as I tell the story, couldn't reasonably be expected to do two people's jobs for a sustained period. It's just unfathomable. And then he, I remember him telling me, saying that he signed off sick for six months and it's going to, you know, he was told to sign off sick. And then I remember just saying, okay, well, look, don't worry, I'll help you through this. It sounds like to me that you're burnt out. And what was even sort of more resonant is that I went through my own burnout only a couple of months before that in my job. So I was doing the work of three people and I got to a really, really bad state myself. So I could really see the signs in him by referencing and triangulating what I'd had been through. I had that numbness. I had that complete disinterest. And, you know, I'll be very frank and honest, I felt suicidal at times because I thought I'm in a job here and and the only honorable way to, to keep my self-esteem and ego and integrity intact is to find, is to not admit defeat and say, I'm sorry, I can't cope, but ending my life, which honestly, I had some dark and honest thoughts. So, so going back to my brother, he yeah, he got signed off sick and then he was seen by his local family doctor uh, or GP, as we call it here in the UK. And he went through a mental health assessment. And then I, I kept in touch with him. I remember getting that call on a Thursday and I went to see him on the Sunday. So I drove about an hour and a half from where I live and, and I drove to see him. And I'll never forget that, that that's the last time I saw him. But he was just completely <sighs> deconstructed. It's probably the, the best word that I can use to describe what he, what he looked like. He was probably in a state of really quite a high, I call it a high functioning anxiety. So even though he was off sick, he was still on his phone to his colleagues, handing over patients and telling them what tests and follow-ups to do and just not letting go and still doing that. And and we, we talked things through privately. I remember we went into this kitchen on a one-to-one and you know, I'd have a, a brotherly ch- uh, chat to him and I talked to him and I said, don't worry, I think you're burnt out, but I'll, I'll help you go through this. I said, I've been through this myself. And I remember he was sort of sitting side on to me like this and just suddenly turned at me and said, why didn't you tell me that you were real and just got quite angry with me? But I thought, I'm not going to, let's not deal with that now. But um, typical older brother of looking out for his younger brother. But I, I made it very clear to him that, you know, I was there to help him and I could see the signs of what he was going through. And then he started to tear up and get quite emotional because I think he felt very, very ashamed and weak. And I remember him saying that, you know, I can never, ever go back to my place of work. They're always going to think that I'm weak and I couldn't cope with my work. And, you know, my career is destroyed. I I just can't go back. And if I get through this, you know, I I don't know what I'm going to do. And he was worrying about money and other things. And just a whole barrage of just just angst came out of him. And that was the last time I saw him. And on the Monday, I remember texting him saying, look, are you okay?" And just texted back saying, look, I'm fine. I'm just resting and taking a nap. And I thought, Great, you know, he's taking a bit of time out for himself. But right. um, as it turned out, he was up to other things. He's actually going around tidying up all of his affairs and putting everything in order. And then it came to a head on Tuesday afternoon. I'll, I'll never ever forget the timestamp. It was two eighteen in the afternoon. I got an email, and it was written by him. 
and it was written to his wife and copied me in. And being very typically medical and my brother and that perfectionist attitude, which I know we'll maybe talk a little bit about later, he just had these bullet point lists of instructions of what to do with the house, his finance, and just sort of like a leaving list of things to do. And just the last line said, this is where you'll find me in the car. And um, for those familiar with English geography, there's a place called Beachy Head on the very, very south coast, which is a, it's an open cliff into the uh, English Channel. And it's a, a very well-known suicide spot. So when I read that and I looked at that, I didn't know what to make of it. So I remember rushing home and obviously trying to call him and et cetera, et cetera. And he wouldn't pick up. And I phoned his wife and she didn't know what was going on because his car had gone. She said he's left everything behind and wallet. She said, where is he? And I just said, you better look at this email. And I think she dropped the phone or something like that. And I, when she picked it up again, I said, look, let's just call the police. We don't know what's going on. So fast forwarding a couple of hours, I remember getting to his house and, uh, and the police were there and said, I, I said, what's going on? At the time, I thought he's probably just gone off and wanted a bit of time to himself. And again, naively and stupidly, I thought he's causing a bit of a drama and just maybe tension seeking. I, I just didn't know what to think. And the police gave me an update and said, well, we found his car, but we have the Coast Guard and sniffer dogs and all of these people out looking for him. And then it was about half past eight in, in that evening. The policeman came back into the room after his radio crackled and, and he had a very solemn face and, and said, look, I'm really sorry, but this is the part of the job I hate. And I'm very sorry to say that we found your brother and I'm, I'm very, very sorry for your loss. And I just couldn't process it. I remember just sitting there and trying to process it. And I think after a few minutes, I think I just got up and just drove home. Meanwhile, his wife went upstairs and told the kids what happened and there was just silence. And then the following sort of few weeks were, were just very, very numb, obviously processing it. And um, I remember seeing him at the funeral, seeing my brother's body at the funeral, which is a very, very hard thing to process. I never, I never envisaged seeing him enter back in his own house in his in his late 40s in a coffin and and I just really um poured out a lot of emotion but then in in terms of the sort of the story as it were of his passing that was really that was really sort of an event that inspired a lot of emotions in me several including anger I get a, I guess a bit of resentment against the medical system and the profession that I think let him down along with a variety of I guess sort of quite negative emotions and I started to try and process what happened and realized very quickly that what happened to him certainly wasn't unique and quite a common thing that happened, or I believe a common thing that happens more than it should amongst the medical profession. And so I started to research a little bit about this to try and understand and process it because my brother never had any outward mental illness or, or anything like that. But clearly, in retrospect, he was probably quite severely depressed and hid it. And I know that's completely different to burnouts. It's completely different concept but i know a lot of people sometimes confuse it too but i have my own views on that but so uh, do I. Know, <laughs> indeed as, as i've read very very um as you put very eloquently so you know I, I started to process and just triangulate it with my own experience and i just realized that it was just burnt out and he probably reached a crisis point where he felt that the only logical thing for him to do to end his suffering and pain was to take his own life and i know my brother he was he was scared of heights and so for him to drive to a spot about 100 miles from his house and to then probably immerse himself in that openness of beautiful scenery in the sea was obviously something that he felt that he needed to do to, to end his pain. But I know that he wanted to send a very clear message to say, look what's happened to me. Look what the system has done to me. So that really inspired me to really try and think about, well, how do I carry on that message? How do I continue to do that? And I, I then 
sort of started to think, well, I, I wanted to create something to make sure primarily that other people don't go through the, a similar phenomenon. A small part of it, I guess, was to try and remember him to, to a point, but not really, not really to sort of, I didn't want to call it the Jagdeep Sidhu Foundation or anything like that because a lot of other people have done something similar. But I wanted to try and use a lot of the business skills that I've acquired in my career and apply it to something charitable disregard. So a lot of the reasons were based around me setting up the charity Doctors in Trust. wasn't really to honor him. Primarily, it was to make sure that other people didn't go through what he did, primarily by people learning through his case history and others, uh, similar cases of what happened, but really to try and prevent as many further tragedies. And I know that's a very, very ambitious aim. Uh, we, we have a, you know, a goal of zero suicide in the medical profession by 2025. That's not going to happen. But, you know, to a layperson and a non-medic like me, it certainly doesn't make sense that doctors, who I and professional have the utmost respect and admiration for, should have rates of suicide slightly more than the general population because protective factors such as good income, status, intelligence shouldn't really be, with all of that sort of, you know, in play, there shouldn't be high rates of suicide. So I, I really wanted the charity to to try and represent a lot of the things, as I said, what happened to my brother, but with the aim of minimizing suffering to others so other doctors particularly but also importantly to colleagues i remember having very touching meetings with colleagues very soon after and i still keep in touch and i again have huge huge admiration for them to continue to go into work in that same environment and you know see the legacy of the work that he did it must be an incredibly tough thing to do so friends patients colleagues family particularly left behind a widow and two teenage children saying where's my husband where's my dad and I really wanted the charity to try and minimize the suffering that me and my family and his wider circle have gone through, you know, just to help others because it just felt the right thing to do. And it's been a journey so far, but I'll maybe just pause there because I know that's been a, a bit of a monologue to your original question. Well, thank you for sharing. Just absolutely tragic what happened and yet not unimaginable, right? Yet not unheard of, yet not, it just happens to be your brother. I just have a couple quick questions. You said that he was asked to take six months off. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So, um, so his place of work. So he was actually approached by. It was actually a nurse that spotted my brother was very agitated and the phase that he was in, probably in a in a high state of functioning anxiety. And what she described, I remember, was that he came back and forth about five or six times to give her the same instructions and orders for a specific patient, and he just thought. That's really odd. So she spoke to a colleague of his and and he encouraged my brother to go and see his workplace health, occupational health, we call it here in the UK. I don't know what the equivalent is in the US. And they, and they said as a very, again, with hindsight, as I've now come to learn very wrongly, a, a draconian measure of, right, you need to stop working immediately and, and disappear, which, which I think when people are in that situation is probably one of the worst things you can do. Because, uh, and as as you have more eloquently said in in a lot of your publications and and you know and blogs etc. in the work that you do, is people who burn out are actually quite hardworking people, and the protective factor that's been keeping them there is is their work. So to suddenly remove that that single thing that's been sort of keeping them going but has broken them in a very very draconian way can be immensely destroying. And I think my brother probably looked at that and thought, I can't practice medicine now. I can't be a doctor who I want to be, who I've been all of my life, all of my professional life and adult life. I have now been stopped from doing that. And that was probably the tipping point that made him realize that as an individual and a human, 
he just felt completely worthless and um and maybe things could have been done differently and sooner or later you have to mention the s word right shame indeed uh, the, the f word failure the there's no way and the programming runs deep because there's no way i could ever come back here again when you and i outside the fire uh, can observe that, well, there's no way you can carry on right now. Let's get you the care and the rest that you need so that you could potentially come back. And this isn't abnormal, right? Mm -hmm. And everybody goes through it. It's just that you're having a, a much more difficult time recovering from it. Mm -hmm. And I also just want to note that your brother is oldest boy and a brown man. So uh, not only was he achieving all the way through his studies, through his medical school, through his performance, through his position in the institution that employed him at the time he died, but he was doing so having suffered all sorts of discrimination and other things along the way. He, he had doubled down on success in a way that made failure something that seemed like taking his life would be more acceptable. Even Indeed. With, even Indeed. with a wife, even with teenage kids. Oh, yeah. my gosh. I'm so sorry that happened to you and your family and his family. Thank you. Yeah, it's um, very, very tragic. But, um, you know, for, for someone to sort of give their whole life and career dedicated to others in a system that's designed to be compassionate and caring towards its end user, you know, again, with hindsight, to have received very little of that back. To me, when I explain this to non-medical people, it's really perverse. It, I just find it extremely perverse that in the business of giving care, there isn't a care, a structured care mechanism to make sure that the caregivers are looked after. And, and again, that's part of what we would try and do at the charity is to raise awareness of that simple concept and encourage very much changes in cultures and behaviors, both within the medical profession itself, because I've seen doctors and medics. And again, I, I iterate, I have the utmost respect for the profession, but I think doctors, sometimes you can be your own worst enemies. And that, well, of course, that competitive nature and that one-upmanship that's been ingrained in you from medical school can be very, very destructive and, and nobody wins. And I often challenge a lot of medics and, and say, well, if that's the culture that's been in existence since the time leeches were used, because that's when medicine was born pretty much, or if you go even further back, witchcraft and alchemy, but there's a blur with pharmacy there. But that's another podcast episode. There's always been an appetite I see from medics to learn new techniques and new, learn new therapies and new ways of improving patient outcome. But the culture and behavior hasn't really changed or developed to the same pace in the last few decades and right. even probably hundreds of years. And and I say to the medics, I challenge, I say, well, why is that? Why do you not want to learn to be different human beings and, and adopt better working cultures and more collaborative cultures? Because you'll become better doctors for that. And the standard response I get, and, and I'm not going to use expletives, but it, it really gets to me sometimes, is the immediate response. And I know this is a training that you get at medical school is, so where's the evidence for that? Where's the study or trial or data that references that? And I think we've got it, tons of it. It's, acres it's not of difficult. It. Indeed. And it, it just, I think it just comes down to basic human common, just common sense. If you're a nice person and you're nice to people around you, then that spreads and you're nice to everyone else. And the ultimate benefactor is your patient. And why would you not want to adopt some of those changes in cultures and, and you know, modifications? Because if you want to, you'll improve your outcome, you'll improve the tools in your hand to be a medic. But another tool is your behavior and, and the way that you behave with colleagues. So why would you not want to get on board? And, and 
when I explain it sometimes in those blunt terms, I get a very silent response. Well, here's an interesting thing to do. Uh, since we're on, where did the culture come from? I can d- define to you the programming, the brainwashing of the education process, but let's go back in history and let's ask ourselves, where did the modern residency education experience come from? Where a professor would teach an apprentice, basically, how to be a surgeon too. Where did that come from? A bunch of Austrians back in the 1800s. If you get on Wikipedia and research the people who created residency education, you'll find a couple of things. It was insane and cocaine was legal. Mm-hmm. And so if, if you look at the great names of education that started the residency apprenticeship style program until today, most of the time, when you as a layperson look at the pressure that we put on doctors in the education process and we say, why do you do that? It doesn't make sense to me. What you're going to get is because that's the way I was trained. And you can just follow that line all the way back to the cocaine addicts, surgeons that started residencies in the first place back in the 1850s. And I'm not kidding. Yeah. I'm not yeah. being inflammatory. There's documentation. Okay. <laughs> I, I just don't have the names on the top of my head right now. Right. So, sorry, but it's that famous phrase. That's the way it's always been. Right. And right. I think now's as good a time as any to say, is that the right way to do it going forward? Right. Well, and that's what, you know, the pendulum has swung a little bit back with the work hour restrictions that were put on residency uh, shifts in America back in 2004, 10 years or so ago in England and the NHS trying to get the extreme exhaustion and the extreme overwork taken care of. But here's the way I thread this together from my own personal experience and from working with thousands of doctors at this point. First of all, the selection process for doctors is a little bit unusual because we are a subset of the human population. A person who says, who looks at medical school and says, yeah, I want to do that. That's a different kind of a person. And one of the things that they have to be driven to do is to give, to help, to heal, to put somebody else first naturally and automatically because I'm here in service. But secondly, I have to know that the process of training me is going to be long and hard. So I have to also look in the mirror and say, have I got what it takes? How do I know I've got what it takes? I know I can work hard and look at these grades, right? So I am a person who has character traits of workaholic, superhero, lone ranger, perfectionist. I have them. And as a person that's not in college yet or not in medical school yet, I have the ability to turn those on and off. But from day one of medical school till... I decide to stop seeing patients. I'm going to use those character traits 100% of the time, no off switch. And I tend to become those things over time. In the medical education system, you learn the two prime directives. I don't know what you call two prime directives, but I'm going to say two prime directives. Okay. So number one is the one everybody knows, right? The patient comes first. And this is the great blind spot of healthcare is everybody pushes to serve the patient And there isn't the normal balancing act that happens in every other industry where the leadership focuses on the workers. Leadership also pushes the doctors to the patient. And the patient can't come first 24-7, 365, and you survive that encounter with that profession, right? There has to be an off switch, which is what we teach right away when we take on a burnout doctor client. But the second one, is way darker and way deeper and is never said out loud. And it's never show weakness, never do anything that 
anybody could suspect is any sign that you haven't got what it takes. You aren't a team player. You know, you don't have the right stuff. You can't hack it. And I'm a big old white guy, big old straight white guy. English is my native language. I was born in the United States of America. There's no additional pressure put on me to perform. But if you differ from me in any of those characteristics, you've been pushed harder and discriminated against along the way. So it seals that it seals that training even deeper down inside. Very inside, yeah. It's um, it's so resonant, and and the way that you describe it is really, I've never heard it described so so beautifully. Actually, uh, beautifully isn't it, it's not the right word, but accurately is is probably a better is a better phrase. But um, I, I sometimes sit and think and wonder in in the face of so much adversity, how do doctors just continue to try and maintain that facade of as you say, not showing weakness. Because one thing my brother did say to me was he was very scared of a regulatory investigation should he make a mistake. It's a, I know it's a hugely, hugely disruptive thing. And when he said that phrase, of, you know, that fear of vulnerability, as I'll sort of paraphrase it, it's, it's practicing medicine in a very, very defensive posture and, you know, in a very, very risk-averse way. And, and it must be just incredibly difficult for doctors to really just maintain that for the duration of their careers. And as you say, that the more you progress in your career, the more ingrained that becomes and it more it just becomes a natural behavior where you just lose sight of of who you were once before it. Medicine can be a very, very rewarding career and a rewarding profession, as I see it from the outside, but to an individual, to a lot of individuals, we're all human, right? We all have physiologies that are largely the same, but our psyche is very different. But we all get affected by the same things as everyone else does. But it, it can really destroy you as a person. And my brother is a great example of that. It's destroyed many others, not in a negative way, but really damaged them. And again, through no fault of their own. That's really the annoying thing that really makes me angry. It's not the individual's fault. It's the system's fault. But there doesn't seem to be that pace of change within the system that needs to address it. And and that's one of the frustrations I have individually when, when I look at this. And, and through the work that we do at the charity, I, I often say to the team, well, proverbially, I don't want to be that sort of dictator type of figure but i just say i get really frustrated just not seeing the mindset and the cultures change in the way that you described that it needs to because it just affects you know medics particularly and as we've seen in the pandemic as well recently at the time of recording this in in you know 2021 the, the pressure has been even harder but having said that there's been more of an acceptance that doctors are vulnerable and that's something that we've seen as a narrative here particularly in the uk and i think globally there is much more of an acceptance and understanding uh, of john doe to say, actually, yeah, these guys are going through a tough time. But my concern is now, as as we reach a more stable position in the pandemic, because it's not going to go away. A lot of what people think it will, but it won't. Um, it won't. It won't. Is are we going to lose that sympathy and compassion that we have for the people that look after us? And I really hope that we don't. I think that the sacrifice that has been witnessed by the general population simply because of cell phones and ICUs and other things that you see on the national news at night and the depth of the sacrifice with the refrigerated trailers and the parking lots and everybody overloaded, mm -hmm. I think will cause a window of empathy and sympathy towards the medical profession that make meaningful movement towards physician well-being, nurse well-being, healthcare provider well-being, something that will be possible here for a short period of time, a short period of time until we just go back to business as usual. And I just want to, I want to alter your appreciation for the word facade. So what I want you to know is that there is no facade. 
if there was a facade of invulnerability of superhero workaholic lone ranger perfections if it was a facade i could remove it it becomes an identity it becomes an identity such that i would rather take my life jumping off a cliff when i know i'm afraid of heights take my life than remove those characteristics that were drilled in me by my trip through the medical education system very sad it's not something that it's not something where we can look at the person and say, why don't you just take a break? I mean, God, what's wrong with you? Well, the, the only comparison I have in terms of a conditioning experiment is uh, basic training in the military. Basic training in the military, everybody knows you're being <laughs> conditioned to follow orders, right? Mm. But basic training in the military is only in the States, only six to 13 weeks. Medical education, I spent the shortest amount of time possible in the medical education system because I'm a family doc. That's four years of med school, three years of residency. That's seven years. Do you think in seven years I was conditioned at least a little bit? I mean, it's just, it's just insane how deeply this is driven in. And if there was a culture in healthcare that was like any other industry where the leadership team focuses on the health of the workers so the workers can do the work, that's any other industry. There is no industry that does not understand you have to take care of the workers except healthcare, because in healthcare, the patient comes first. And I was listening to you tell your story of your brother, and he gave signs. But what I want you to know is you could have reached out and you could have held him and hugged him and tackled him to the ground and expressed your love for him and asked him to take a break. And he still might have refused to, and it might not have changed anything. That's how deep this goes. Yeah. But somebody at work knew. I think more than one person knew, but because of stigma and taboo, didn't want to face it or raise it. And and again, with my naive perception on things, something that I find is when doctors are challenged, and I think it goes back to that being seen to be weak and vulnerable, an immediate, exactly. The hands go up. A simple hello. How are you? I'm fine. Why do you ask? Have you noticed a problem with my work? Oh, is there a typo on that on that discharge? There's an immediate defensive posture saying, "Okay, they're asking me. I'm okay because they've noticed something's wrong." And again, you know, something we try and do very naively and very, I'll call it, I, I don't know what word to put on it, but very sort of simply is, is it's fine to just say to people, "How's it going?" and and it's a very, very small thing that can sometimes go a long way, but I'm confident and I know that throughout my brother's medical career, I doubt a single person or a single colleague just asked him, hello, how are you? Genuinely. I know it's a phrase that we say, hi, how are you doing? But genuinely said, look, how are you doing? I don't think he ever got that. And, and that's part, I think that goes down to a lack of compassionate and strong leadership of the health system of doctors. It's very sad that people just have to carry that or, or go through that journey that you describe of conditioning and, and just operating in that way it, it just takes its toll and very sadly as my brother showed it it can reach a, a peak as it were that can't be uh can't be can't climbed down from well and notice how the standards that are driven in deep as being the only acceptable standard which is perfection are unattainable on this physical realm right you can't live up to it. You're actually pre-programmed to burn out. So why do medical schools 
do that because I believe that's where it starts from. I'm going to tell you what I told you about 10 minutes ago because <laughs> that's the way I did it. That's the way mm. I was taught. Now, I can show you with a quick diagram. I'm not going to do it right now, but that medical education is the energetic equivalent of waterboarding, not because they designed the process to do that to you. It just does because there is no option to call in sick. I'm sorry. I haven't slept in 36 hours. I'm not going to be able to show up for work today. You would never do that ever, 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 because you know, you might even get drummed out of the program and you've been trying to get here for six years in the first place. Right? So it's not that anybody's trying to do this. It's the way the system has been set up since the beginning. It's a rite of passage because medical education is a survival contest. All you have to do is get to the finish line and you're free. The challenge is by the time you get to the finish line, you don't realize that you're free. Indeed. The yeah, world's your say, oyster, or, right? Indeed. Or, um, or you create your own finishing line. Right. And sometimes mm -hmm. with tragic consequences, right? And we've now heard the origin story of, of your brother and of the charity what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about the services that you offer, the way you've decided to support. And what I also want to do is make a different podcast where we talk about what does it take to be a successful person who starts a charity to help healthcare workers and burnout and suicide and things like that. Because I'm sure in the three years you've been doing this, that you've learned some lessons. If you would, could you tell us a little bit about the slate of services that I ran into on your Facebook page and your LinkedIn page and all the things that you're doing right now to support UK docs? Sure. So, so something that I consciously decided to do and as the charity started to take shape and people joined was that I wanted to really try and make sure that we focus very much on prevention. Here in the UK and indeed elsewhere, there's lots of physician health programs and helplines, etc. But I really wanted to try and do something that probably wasn't being done as well as it should be, or, or there was a gap. So what we do is try and focus very much on prevention. And at the moment, the primary way that we do this, and again, we're limited by the funding that we, we can have and attract, is really to, to try and provide what we call reflective spaces or talking spaces. So this is, these obviously due to the recent pandemic is for the moment, these are online, but we hope to be running these in person. These are facilitated groups where doctors of a similar breed or an area of interest can come together and just talk about the emotional impact of their work. And we see the real benefit of that and the feedback that we get from doctors in, first of all, they say, number one, it's great to be in a like-minded group because other groups that we sometimes access through our work or others, we have to sit and explain what we do and there's different skill sets. But here, we don't have to explain. We look at somebody else, the other eight virtual people in our group that have worked in ICU. We just look at each other and we know what we're going through. And I should say as well that all of our groups, we have facilitator-led hosting, as it were. So these are trained psychotherapists. These are trained professionals, to group analysts, to make sure that the dynamics of the group and people can extract the best benefit from that. And a good example of the first groups that we ran, and it was actually the first of its kind in the UK, back in September of 2020, was for doctors with long COVID. So as long COVID started to manifest itself, there was quite a cohort of doctors that were really affected by it. And we've actually run a second round of groups for those doctors where a lot of them have found immense support, again, just by being in that same environment and primarily not feeling alone. Again, when I triangulate back to what my brother felt and, and everything that we do at the charity, I, I try and 
triangulate to say what could have saved someone like him what would have helped because that way i know that can be meaningful going forward so had he had access to that downtime to be able to talk about the impact of his work in a non-judgmental environment without fear of shame or retribution or anything like that things may have been different so so that's really the primary way that we do this we bring together groups we don't just do that for doctors right now we've broadened that out to nurses midwives and other healthcare professionals that we have a role at. So we do various topics. Now, one particularly successful one is for doctors that identify of black origin or African origin and heritage, because again, we touched a little bit on racism and, you know, some of the stuff that I've seen come out of that group, again, being very, very new to the profession and sphere, I, I never realized had such an impact on doctors themselves. So they can talk about that in a very safe space again, without the fear of retribution, shame, publicity, et cetera, et cetera. So that's really the primary way that we do things. But on the periphery, we try and really focus on doing three things is number one, to deconstruct stigma. So we talk about things, we run publicity campaigns, we publicize cases, we try and talk about the topic of adverse physician health, mental health particularly, because we feel that will break down stigma. Secondly, we try and encourage changing cultures and behaviors within the professional health system. That's linked to stigma. And thirdly, promoting the value of good, strong and compassionate leadership. And because of our health system here in the UK, with it being government and state funded, we particularly try and influence government in that regard to to make sure that the doctors that they're essentially paying for are, are looked after. And I, I guess to summarise that last point a bit better, and my brother actually phrased this beautifully, he said, at the moment, simply, and I know this is not just UK based, but globally, there just aren't enough resources to treat the number of patients. Everyone's living longer. There are more people around. Yet capacity, the number of people, the tools has, hasn't grown in comparison. So you're naturally going to get a pressure point. So it, it's quite a melting pot. But in terms of services that we provide, that's largely what we do. And we rely on charitable donations and funding to achieve those. And what I've found over and over and over again especially since we also train physician leaders, we train physician wellness champions inside organizations and we go out and, and they say, how do I get started? What I found is that it really doesn't matter at all. If you can get a group of doctors or nurses or EMTs or ther whatever, right? Keep them in their tribe though, if you can. So nurses mm -hmm. and doctors, they, they mix okay, but they mix better if there's only nurses and only doctors in the group. But anytime yeah. you can get them away from work and away from the patients, to talk about what it's like to be a doctor or nurse is therapeutic. And it doesn't matter what you're doing. You could be going on a walk. You could be skiing between Zermatt and where? Verbier? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, indeed. That's one of the fundraisers, by the way, is, a, is an, That's Alps, right, yeah. an Alps traverse. You could be, we've even had people doing bowling, 10 pin bowling. And yeah. it doesn't matter what you're doing. You're just with your tribe away from work, sharing the real beef. Sooner or later, the real beef will come up about what it's like to actually go through the experience of being a doctor in the first place. Another thing that you did was uh, somehow you got Claire Garada on <laughs> right up front, right? Do, yeah. Tell us who Claire is for those who don't know who she is. Yeah, so so Claire has quite a varied and wide background. She She's a family doctor. She's held very senior positions within the health systems and is a government advisor as well on uh, on certain issues. So uh, she was made a dame uh, recently, so um, received very, very high royal honours for her work, primarily for setting up Practitioner Health, which is uh, England and Wales's only physician health programme. 
uh, and that's been established, I think, for about 10, 11 years. But um, she's also been president of the Royal College of GPs, uh, and I believe she's standing for election again imminently. So may see another tenure in that role. But, you know, she's held very, very senior positions at uh, the BMA, which is the British Medical Association. She advises government and has very, very strong links. But she's she's probably been the most prominent activist and advocate for physician health here in the UK. And I realized again very, very early on, me, member of the public, John Doe, no one knows who I am. In order to try and achieve what I wanted to achieve, I realized very quickly that I needed to try and attract and convince the right people to join me on the mission and collaborate where needed. And I pestered Claire and I actually got to know her through a bereavement group that she runs specifically for loved ones who doctors have taken their own lives. Mm. And when I joined that group, there was about seven or eight members and we're now up to 40 or 50 and it grows every few months. So so that's really where I got to know Claire initially. And we started sparking off in a few things. And me being the person that I am, I, I was on a career break after my burnout. So I, I took a year off my work and I decided in that time, I'm just going to set a charity up and then just see where that goes. And, and I managed to attract Claire and we work very, very well together. Uh, and I have to say, she has a cracking sense of humor as well. She does. I agree. <laughs> Well, and, and another thing that I'll just point out is that her program is Crisis Intervention, the program that the NHS is asking her to interest, to run. You are prevention, and you're using the social, tribal, cultural, internal support mechanism to do it. I think it's a great place to be. It's train the trainer to get everybody out to have a local group meeting. It is actually going to, I think, work for you, especially as a preventative uh, medicine for um, burnout and depression in doctors. So congratulations on behalf of your brother and all the people that you've helped along the way, who you'll never know chose not to do that because of a conversation they had at one of your groups. Yeah. Congratulations and thank you. Let's just talk about how people might get a hold of you. It is, uh, let's see, doctors-in-distress.org.uk. And uh, Doctors in Distress is a presence on Facebook and LinkedIn. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we take a little break here and come back and record another episode that talks about running a charity like this? <laughs> no, I think I've really enjoyed this. And I think any doctor that's listening to this, I would just encourage them, please try and take in what you've heard. If you are in a state of crisis or you're feeling as though that you need to reach out for help, please, please do not feel ashamed. You're not alone. There are resources out there and there is help available. And please learn from my brother's case and other cases. There are always other solutions out there. And I certainly want you to be as healthy as you can be. And uh, I know, Dyke, you do as well. So um, if you are listening and you need help, just reach out for help. It's totally fine. Nobody will judge you. Nobody will make any negative connotations out of that. And um, be as healthy as you can be. It's not a career-ending move to ask for help, even though it does violate your Never Show Weakness programming. And then I'll just say, one of the hints that you need to take a break is when that little voice in your head says, I'm not sure how much longer I can keep going like this. That's enough to ask for help right there. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Amandip Sidhu from doctorsindistress.org.uk. This has been Dyke Drummond at the latest of the Physician on Purpose podcast. We'll see you in the next show. Until then, keep breathing and have a great rest of your day.